This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I am Mark Gerson, and I am the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today I'm here with you with my good friend, Rabbi Simcha Mervis, who lives in Sfat in Northern Israel. Simcha, welcome. Thank you so much. So uh, Simcha leads the Sfat uh, Legacy Center in Sfat. And uh, before we get into the passage that he chose to discuss, which is Genesis 11, and particularly Genesis 11.3, let me ask you a couple questions about yourself. So Simcha, you grew up in Memphis, correct? Sure did. Now, how did you get from the home of Elvis Presley, from the home of the creator of Blue Suede Shoes, to the home of Rabbi Shlomo Eichobitz, the creator of Lechado D. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the truth is one step at a time. You know, it, it's not like you were beamed up by aliens and brought down into a Kabbalistic Hasidic community here on a mountainside. This is a one step of a long journey where, as you said, trying to unearth the practical and inspirational truth of the Torah. And this is where my path took me. And you've been there for 11 years. Correct. Okay, so now let's get into Genesis 11.3. So this is the story of the Tower of Babel. And before we delve into the Tower of Babel, Simca, perhaps you could just discuss the context of how and where this arrives in the Torah. Great point. It's so important to look at the context. Context is king especially here, we're coming at the tail end of the flood narrative where humankind has been devastated, not just uh, the ones who perished, but also those who survived in the greatest natural or actually divine disaster, being helpless uh, in the face of the flood. And God has just promised that he will never bring such a deluge again. And that's the backdrop for the tower. So the backdrop of the tower is God promises he'll never destroy the world again. And I think it's very interesting and really one of the most ominous notes in all of human literature is God says he, God, will never destroy the world again, but he leaves it there. Right. Meaning, of course, that man could destroy the world. Right. Oh, and so here man is given the opportunity, as you were saying, man's given the opportunity to destroy the world, create the world, do anything with the world. And what does man do? So it, it, it's kind of a paradox, because as we'll see if we dive deeper into the text, that in an attempt to save mankind, in an attempt to kind of buttress their living conditions and prevent a future flood, they actually bring themselves to the precipice of destroying themselves. So sometimes in our effort to survive and to protect ourselves, we're actually inflicting damage on our own future. So let's see where that comes in the text. So we begin uh, this passage with 11.1, and we read that the whole earth was of one language and a common purpose. And then we get to what the people do with their one language and a common purpose. They say, and this is what you want to discuss most specifically, they say, quote, come, let us make bricks and burn them in fire. Right. So you think, okay, who cares? Bricks, stones, wood, who cares what they're building with? Why does the Torah have to put so much effort? And if you read the, the rest of the sentence, the rest of the verse, and the brick was for them as stone, and the clay was for them as mortar. 
So what attracted me to this verse is the idea that we're not just getting technical information. The Torah is telling us something much deeper. And I'm basing myself on uh, Hirsch's approach here, where he understands one second. They're in a valley. The Babylonian valley is not a rocky terrain. They can't build as their fathers built. They don't have trees to build an ark as Noah did. They don't build with stones. How are they going to survive? How are they going to build the civilizations? Well, they come up with the idea of using the clay, of using the dirt to create the bricks. They're autonomous. They're not dependent on their natural resources anymore, at least of the classic materials. And that's why the verse says, let's make bricks. The brick was for them as stone, meaning instead of stones, and the clay was for them as mortar. In other words, that which was usually the glue, the clay, they used that for the main building block that was the brick. The clay was for them as the mortar usually was. So this is really one of the first or perhaps the first technological development in the history of mankind. That's what attracted me to this verse. As, as we as a civilization today try to grapple with the ramifications of our technology, I think that there's some very deep insights here how technology was first used. If you allow me to add, what Hirsch suggests here is that it has to do with the means and the ends. Usually, the clay, the, the mud, that was the, the glue. That was the mortar which stuck the bricks together. But you needed stones. So here, they turned that which was usually the means, and they made that into the end in and of itself. They turned that into the brick. And, and, and he points out, and if, if you allow me just one more thought on that, how do you do that? You need a furnace. To run a giant furnace, you need a lot of burning materials. You're going to burn anything you can find. If you have trees, fine. But if you don't, what are you going to burn? What is that furnace? What is that engine of society to push out those bricks? What are you going to stick in those furnaces? So, so the idea that, that if you have this massive building project and you need to create the bricks yourself, you don't find them, but you need to have a furnace. So uh, what are you going to sacrifice? Who are you going to sacrifice on this altar of your societal goals? Interesting thing is the only other time we find this word bricks, levenim, in the whole Torah, guess where? What other great building enterprise in the book of Exodus? Where? Good question. What is it? The slavery in Egypt. Hmm. Pharaoh gave the Jews their daily quota to build the bricks, ah, right. to create the bricks. So there's this kind of this parallel of how do you undertake a brick building enterprise with furnaces and the human element, the human price that is potentially paid on this altar of, of your technological advances. So, so we get into the question, I guess, of the means and the ends or the rest, relationship between the individual and the society. Does, you know, is the individual only there to serve the society or to what degree does society, the whole, the community have to also enrich and defend the individuals that comprise that community? And I think it's a very, another very interesting kind of uh, part of the text here where it says in 11.3, they said to one another, as you just discussed, come, let us make bricks. So it's, okay, they're going to make bricks. And then it's as though the narrator of the Torah says, let's see what they do with it. Because then it says again, and they said, come, 
let us build a city with a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed all over the earth. So in the beginning, they said to one another, let us make bricks. Morally neutral, let us make the bricks and then the rest of us, let's observe what they do with the bricks. And then it says, and they said, as though it's another thought, as though it's almost entering another universe. And they said, come, let us build a city. And so this is what they chose to do with the bricks, which as you said, was a substitute for stone. So what do they choose to do with the bricks? They said, let us build a city. And we know that is violative of God's word originally because God told Adam to disperse all over the world. And here they want to build a city and put everyone in one place with its tower at the top of the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. Beautiful. I I love that idea of what you're suggesting, the two stages. In other words, there's always the first stage. Technology is, as you said, morally neutral. There's no value attached to it. The fact that you can do something is wonderful. There's always the second stage. It doesn't even have to happen at the same time. It could be they had the brick technology, you know, much earlier than they somehow got the idea, hmm, what would happen if we, instead of dispersing, we kind of band up together. Um, as I'm suggesting, we sacrifice the individuals to to build this uh, giant monolith. Important, you know, let me ask you a question. What else do you see here that gives you the idea that something is wrong? Besides violating the imperative to disperse, what else kind of gives you a hint that they are doing something that's going to incur God's wrath as actually happens? Well, I see something in 11.1 where it says the whole earth was of one language and a common purpose. In other words, everybody thought the same way. So when everyone's speaking one language and has a common purpose, that means they think the same way, which means there's no diversity of thought. And to me, that's very ominous because God loves diversity. God loves genuine diversity, true diversity. God has created each person in his image. In other words, each person is unique and each group of people is unique and each person and each people have a divine purpose that we have to realize, but it's going to be different than everyone else's purpose. And it all comes together in kind of a divine harmony. But when everyone has one language and one purpose, they're thinking the same way. And that is not the way of the world. Absolutely. That's groupthink. We know how dangerous that is. It almost led us, uh, if you remember the uh, Kennedy Center uh, research into um, the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, that almost led to nuclear disaster, the groupthink processes that happened in the White House. So here also, when you have too much emphasis on the communal, on the society, society is in itself that kind of furnace that takes that mud and creates these very, very identical bricks. Think about it. Stones, I live in Sfat, many buildings here where I'm sitting are built of ancient Galilean stones. Each stone, I deal with it myself, is different. And the whole challenge is how you fit them into this wonderful tapestry. Bricks you throw them out, you know, manufactured, industrial, they're all the same specifications. They're all same language, common purpose. Each stone is unique. Each brick is uniform. And that symbolizes the larger problem of the society, which is that when the people are given freedom, really for the first time, what do they do? They decide on uniformity, which is unnatural and wrong. And they have this terrible combination of unnatural because we're all so unique. We're all created in God's image. We're all different. But the idea of one language and one purpose, that's the idea of the totalitarian. Absolutely. Yeah. God's vision is entirely different. And so then it says, I, I think another problem is it says, uh, you know, you asked initially, you, we, we talked about how 
technology is morally neutral. So what do they want to do with the technology? They want to make a tower with its top to the heavens and they want to make a name for themselves. Now, is there anything wrong inherently with wanting to make a name? I mean, God tells Abraham slightly after this, God tells Abraham, I'll make a great name for you. Right, right. I hear you. I just can't ignore another parallel in the biblical narrative. We have another great building project also in Exodus. I'm not talking about the slaves in Egypt. The golden calf? Uh, No, uh, even a little slightly later. How about the Mishkan, the tabernacle? Ah. We have half the book of Exodus dedicated to that building process. And there we find, at least uh, later on, that the purpose of building that temple was to create a place where God's name would rest on earth. So you have these two parallels, the people's name upstairs in heaven, or is it God from heaven's name being embodied and uh, inspiring human living down below? So so I do feel that this um, making a name for themselves is somewhat counter to the purpose of our, our our being here in this world. I think I think that's exactly right because I think what this text is is teaching us in the context of the Mishkan, like you talked about, in the context of Abraham, in the context of two Samuel, where a name is made for David, is that the purpose has to be something divine. The purpose has to be something to serve humanity. The purpose has to be something that is morally good. If as a derivative effect of that, a name gets made for you, that's all to the good. If you develop a good reputation for serving God, that's a great thing. But to go for a name in and of itself, for the name to be the purpose, that's the problem. Beautiful, beautiful. I think you could take that back also to the issue of the individual. If you're saying that every individual kind of gets amalgamated into that furnace and comes out uniform, 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 then what about a name? They don't have names. They have numbers, right? The idea of a name for the whole somehow deletes the individual names. So you can look at it as the human name versus God's name, but also you can look at what about my name, your name, his name, and her name, as opposed to the name of the collective. Well, that's very, very interesting, particularly in the context of this story, because there are thousands of names all throughout the Torah, and there are no names in the Tower of Babel story. Nobody in this story has a name. Wow, wow, look at that. Yeah, I mean, the irony is they say, come, let us make a name for ourselves, and nobody has a name. (laughs) Right, right, interesting, so interesting. If I can circle back to Abraham for a second, you know, the idea of being different, the idea of God loving the heterogeneous uh, fabric of society. So in a sense, uh, even from the biblical narrative and certainly from uh, traditional uh, narratives, he was an iconoclast. He was the one who went against society. And let me point out something very interesting from a clever calculation, not done by me. Abraham was born the year the tower was built, you can derive this from the, the different generations and the um, years and ages of the different generations, meaning it's as though Abraham himself stands in a position to this tower. He was like on one side and the whole world was the other side. He was that individual who perhaps was supposed to be thrown into that furnace and made uniform, but he stood for a different path. Very interesting. And, and what is the name... Um... Ivri mean ah beautiful. I was alluding to that. Ivri from the is the root of side. So it's as though as 
the whole world was on one side of the river. Our Abraham came from one side of the river, and the whole world was on the other side of the river. And he he wasn't afraid to um, stand up and keep his own name, as it were, as opposed to this uh, trend in society, which was enabled by that technology. So basically, God sees that when people are given the ability to recreate, the first thing they do is to make a mistake. They decide to have one language, one purpose, in other words, one way of thought, and they develop technology, no problem at all. In fact, it's a good thing to develop technology. Then the question is, what do they do with it? And they say, let's build a city where we aggregate everyone in one place, and let's make a name for ourselves, not a name for God, not a name for any virtue, not a name for any moral aspiration. Let's make a name for ourselves. And what you're saying is, in that same year, perhaps on that same day, God creates Abraham, who will stand to the side and be the iconoclast, be the individual, and in so doing, marshal a people that will effectively do the opposite of what the builders of Babel did. Absolutely beautiful. And now just one more thing before we get to the uh, the final question. What does Babel or Babel mean? Interesting, interesting. So Babel is actually connected to the world to confuse, right, or to confound and as it were, he confounded their uniformity and forced them to have different languages, different cultures, different uh, geographical locations. And that is Babel. But here it's a blessing. It's, it's, a, it's a blessed confusion. Right. So and another great irony of the story. Here they start with one language and one purpose, the opposite of confusion. And yet the name that we call them is confusion. Very interesting. The Tower of Babel, right? It's it's so funny. It's so funny. You know what? It's because in that uniform society, they are so confused, right? In the confused, that's heterogeneous right. tapestry of society, ah, that's where each fragment refracts a different truth of the divine light. Beautiful, beautiful. So with, so with that, uh, Simka, let's go to uh, to the next question, the final question which uh, derives from Andre Malroux's 1968 book entitled Anti-Memoir, where he talks about uh, running into a man uh, with whom he served in the war. And he said, uh, this man had um, saved a lot of Jews and had then become a priest. And he said to this man, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are the two things that you've learned about mankind? And he said, I've learned two things. One is that everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. Hmm. So in your 11 years of serving as a rabbi in the mystical city of Sfat, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Wow. So let me tell you, harping uh, on his insight about people aren't as happy as they've seen, I have discovered here that there are people, I grew up in Memphis, I grew up in an upper middle class uh, upbringing. There are people here who on one hand have to worry about how many eggs do they have in their pantry to the end of the week and will they have enough eggs to have enough dinners for the family. That kind of poverty, I was blown away. I couldn't believe it. Yet the level of happiness, contentment with life rivals my friends and relatives on Park Avenue, if not exceeds it. So so there are people who you, the opposite, uh, the corollary of that would be, there are people who you would think would be a miserable lot, but they are so happy and so content. How do they achieve their happiness in spite of their poverty? 
And, and that that would be my second insight. It's not an accident that so many of the people that I that I've had the privilege to meet here in Svar. I'm not talking about the millions of tourists who come in the colorful collection of visitors and seekers. I'm talking about the natives. The the flow is the opposite here. Whereas you know where we met uh, on the Upper East Side the first time, the reality of Svat is the world of the eternal, the world of the spirit. That is the truth. That is something that's actual. The physical world, that's okay also, but the focus on eternal values puts everything else in perspective. I have met people who are, you know, there are a lot of righteous dudes out there, but I've met people who are holy people who, whose perspective on life is measured through the lens of eternity. That which will matter to them on their last day in the world is what matters to them every day in this world. And when you live life like that, the amount of eggs you have in your pantry just ain't so important. It's a beautiful way to put it. Now, so what do you mean on that what matters to them on the last day is what matters to them today? What will matter to them on the last day? Well, well, that's a question I think we all have to ask ourselves is if we can imagine our last day in the world, looking back, we're going to make an inventory and ask ourselves, you know, what were the things that, ah, that had eternal meaning. Looking back now on the edge of eternity, that made a difference no matter what. Whereas some things were just ephemeral. They were, a, you know, a nice time, but they don't make any difference now. So, you know, we hope that when we get there, we have, uh, you know, a, a good balance and, uh, and a, a strong holding in the eternal, absolute, meaningful words and deeds and actions. But uh, if you, the trick is not to wait to then. It's to already live life now as though it was your last day. Now, did the people that, that you've gotten to meet in Svat who do that, did they cultivate that ability so that they could see every day with the same lens as their last day? Or did it come with their upbringing or did it come naturally or how did they get it? I think it's a lot of all of those, a little of all of those. But I will just point out one thing. I live, you know, if you live on Fifth Avenue, so you have park view, the park view, that's the premium view. Uh, one day you'll come to my house I overlooked the ancient cemetery where those luminaries you mentioned earlier, Bishlomo Alkabetz and the other great luminaries of Tzfat have their final resting place. You know, with that view, it's just hard to care about, uh, you, you know, which iPhone you have or what car you have or what apartment you have. Just the very atmosphere of living in the shadow of such great thinkers, great scholars, the very living here itself cultivates that kind of a perspective. Wow. Well, God willing, I will visit you in Svat sometime soon. It's a deal. Just bring a cigar. Absolutely. We will. The, the strange fire of Nadab and Avira. <laughs> right. You, you'll be the only one with a cigar in Svat, but it's good. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> well, Simka, thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mark. A pleasure. You are the God of the brain.